Hi, I'm Dee Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Or good morning or good evening, depending on what time zone you're in and what time of the day you happen to be picking up this podcast. I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to think with me about uh, highly leveraged leadership scenarios. So this podcast might sound just a little bit different. Um, I'm using uh, the uh, Audio-Technica microphone today, which is a really nice microphone, the ATR2100. And uh, the reason I'm doing that is because we're not in our podcast studio, actually out traveling today. So I took the portable unit with us so that we could put together a podcast and keep those hits coming, (laughs) so to speak. So top floor of a hotel in a snowy part of the northern part of the United States. And uh, it's a beautiful day in the middle of winter. Don't know what season you're listening to this in or, or, or what part of the country you might be in or somewhere else, but appreciate you taking a little bit of time. We're going to talk a little bit today with you about some things we've learned over the years having to do with uh, assessments and managing conflict and conflict as an assessment. So as you know, we're a, we're a research firm and uh, we research primarily um, uh, high performers in high impact situation. And how does it actually work? I've been one of these super curious guys my entire life. So from the time I was a young child, I was going to know how things really, really worked. And so um, out of that grew this this love of, uh, of genuine, replicable, research-based wisdom. And uh, I found some really fascinating things over the years. And of course, in in our in our work, we use a lot of assessments. There are all manner of these assessments. Sometimes they're called personality assessments or strength assessments. And there there are assessments out there that we use that assess uh, you know what you're really really good at. What are often called strength based assessments. There are ones that assess uh, weaknesses. Um, in the vain attempt that if we spend lots and lots of time and energy on our our weaknesses that we would be able to uh, somehow overcome them <laughs> by ourselves, right? Uh, uh, there are assessments that identify how we recharge and uh, how we make decisions, um, one, why we back off from decisions, all kinds of fun assessments around that. There are, uh, there are even assessments that, that uh, help one understand whether, whether we like uh, details or whether we like the big picture. There's even an assessment out there that helps find out if we're rooted in the past, if we always think about the past, or if we like to leap into the future and think from the future back to today. These are fun. They're usually uh, instructive. Sometimes they're even occasionally insightful, mostly because of the conversations that they create. If you just take an assessment, read the results, and then, and then go hide in a dark corner somewhere with a Miller light. I don't know if anybody even drinks those anymore, but uh, if you do that, then you probably won't get any insight out of it. Uh, We tend to think what we already thought. But if we share our assessments with other people and talk about, well, here's what it says, what do you think? Then They they almost function like uh, mirrors for us. We can look in a mirror, and then we have to also turn to another person and say, is is this what you see? However, these assessments are all based on 
your willingness and ability to be just a little bit introspective um, at the uh, really at the most basic level. The assessments that are out there from um, Myers Briggs to any of the CPI stuff to the MMPI to uh, DISC and uh, one great assessments. They are they only work um, if you know yourself well enough to forecast what you would do. Or remember, maybe remember what you have done in a variety of situations. We found that one of the most effective and efficient assessment tools out there, <laughs> one, of the most, one of the most effective ways, I guess, of knowing yourself is through the experience of disappointment. Disappointment is a highly accurate assessment. And <laughs> it's provided free of charge without the help of a trained psychologist <laughs> just provided by your life. Whenever life says no, I get an opportunity to see myself. In fact, um, even as I told my three children as they were growing up, the only way to truly know yourself or someone else for that matter is to experience one or several of life's disappointments. I recall at, at one point, or probably more than one point, asking my children, well, have you said no to your new friend yet? And I remember occasionally that my sons or my daughter would uh, recount a time when their friend's response to a no was to manipulate or whine or become angry or pout. On the other hand, sometimes that no or that disappointment revealed kindness or flexibility or resilience. We can't really know ourselves and know others until we get that big, fat no. Not an explanation. It's just a no. Think of the last time you got one. Think of how you responded. Maybe you were on your way somewhere and were trying to meet a deadline and needed to pull over and get some caffeine, so you whipped into trusty Starbucks or something like that, and, uh, and the line was a lot longer than you thought, and the baristas were slower than you thought. And uh, that was a little bit of a no for you. How'd you react to that? Well, there's a certain type of no that we like to call conflict. Conflict is one of those times when, you know, life just says, nope. It's a common experience, and it provides a, a really, in my opinion, reliable way of glimpsing at our values and our strengths and our drives and, you know, even our impulses. It's so useful that we think of it in, in our work as an accurate assessment tool. We even, when we're looking for, for leaders in our organizations, we watch for how they manage conflict. Without fail, how one thinks about and manages conflict provides the keenest insight into his internal uh, like architecture, his value structure, his disciplines, impulses, and assumptions. I, I think, furthermore, without fail, every effective leader that I've had the privilege of rubbing elbows with for these years is a master at managing conflict. They address it when it is behavioral and before it becomes a pattern. They address it with humble curiosity. They communicate directly. They have learned how to not wait until conflict and all the layers of emotions that it can call up it takes on a larger and more um, intense life of its own. They assume good intent from the get-go, and they assume that actions outweigh words by a 
10 to 1 margin. But how do they do this? All right. How do these effective leaders actually manage conflict? Here's, here's what we have learned. By observing them for decades and asking them and watching what they say and do. All right. Here we go. First, they take stock of their own emotional response when conflict, which is one of life's no's, occurs. If they feel angry, they, they ask themselves what their expectations and, and why that was important. We all know. Uh, that we have expectations about everything that matters to us. And we often, uh, I don't know, fixate, I guess, on the specifics of that expectation rather than on the value that created the expectation. Then when the specifics of the expectation are not met, we, um, it, we experience like a disappointment, not like, I mean, literally a disappointment. We experience irritation and sometimes we even get angry. You're going to go meet somebody at a restaurant, a friend at a restaurant to catch up because you want to connect with your friend and you've imagined slash expected that you're going to get table 19 in the corner over there because it's the most quiet one with the best service. And uh, you walk in and, and uh, you're a couple minutes early before your friend and ask the host, can I have table 19? And the host says, no, I'm sorry, that section's closed. We can sit you back there by the kitchen door. <laughs> And uh, you get a little angry or a little irritated, a little frustrated. No, I went table 19. Sorry, sec- table 19's closed. We, we, we're not going to open that section up, she retorts. So we get more and more irritated. What we're doing there is fixating on the expectation. That is not the actual value that created the expectation. The value, the thing I'm after, the thing that matters to me is connecting with my friend. Table 19 doesn't matter. My goodness. I just need to be able to connect with my friend in a way that we can pay attention and not be interrupted a lot. So, so I could move table 19 to something. I could sit on the tailgate of my pickup truck out in the, out in the parking lot if the weather serves and, and eat the bottomless fries out there. Um, maybe connect even better. Who knows? But the idea behind it is, is the most important thing we're after, the, the value or the drive. Okay. So first, these leaders that we've noticed take stock of their emotional response to the conflict right out of the gate, and they notice their emotions, and they notice that their emotions are often attached to a specific expectation. So they are able to separate the specific expectation from the value uh, that creates that expectation. And, you know, as one of those leaders myself, I take stock of my own emotional response when conflict occurs. I try to do that quickly. Perhaps my response is, is stress. Maybe that's just a generic word that I will identify. I have a stress response to this no or this conflict. And I know that stress is actually fear. So I ask myself what I'm afraid of and why am I afraid of it? Then I ask, all right, if I'm afraid of that, then what? And then I discover that I'm afraid of something on the other side of it. This is actually a pretty rapid mental process if you've done it a couple of times. And then when I discover what I'm actually afraid of, then I say, all right, what am I going to do about this? And I know that I know that I am in complete control, really utter, total control of really only three things. I'm in control of whom I choose to rely on. And I'm in control of my view or my perspective on a matter. And I'm in control of my behavior at this moment right now. And I take control of one or two or all of these three. And then I take the first step. And that fear or stress, as you might think about it, begins to fade. It doesn't just evaporate, but it begins to fade. All right, so first, that is what effective leaders do. They take stock of themselves in a flash. And then second, when it comes to managing conflict, one of life's great assessors, (laughs) these skilled leaders stay behavioral in their focus. When addressing 
the conflict, both in their in their thoughts and then directly with the individual, they focus on observable behavior rather than some sort of internal architecture of intention or motive or plans of the person or people creating the conflict. So an example would be rather than saying, well, you obviously don't care, they would say, you arrived 30 minutes later than you promised. Or rather than saying, you are so arrogant, or even thinking that, they say, you're making a decision that's not yours. Did you know that? Imagine standing in line again. You, you're, you're on your way, and you pull over to get coffee at Starbucks. And so you, you, you stand in line for your morning coffee, and the person in front of you backs up and steps on your toe. Staying behavioral means that you would say, excuse me, you stepped on my toe, rather than, you self-absorbed idiot, <laughs> you see? <laughs> Stay behavioral. Stay behavioral. When you look at the conflict, there's something a person did or did not do. Talk about that. And really, only that. That is the only thing that actually matters. All the rest of the stuff comes and goes. So then third, these really skilled, I think, highly effective leaders that we've studied and had a chance to spend time around uh, are, are really good at clarifying their expectations. So not only do they take stock of their emotions and expectations, but then they, they get down to staying behavioral and then they clarify their expectations. They know that most of the time their team um, operates in, in kind of an invisible and ill-defined world of expectations. Since our expectations rise from our values, they know that we have expectations about everything that matters to us. And they know that we're, aren't, we're not all that good at clarifying our expectations. And then to ourselves, you know, even, and then communicating them to other people. For example, if dependability matters to you as my, for example, supervisor, and you ask me to show up on time, you likely think you've communicated your expectations to me. So do I. We both smile and kind of nod and move on with our day. But when I arrive two minutes, just two minutes before I'm supposed to start work and then grab my coffee and saunter over to my console or my computer or my workspace, you get a little irritated with me because you value dependability. Well, so do I. In fact, I'll show up exactly two minutes before my my shift begins for the rest of my career. However, your expectation of showing up on time means something different to you than it does to me. It means that you think I should show up about 20 minutes early. So skilled leaders are good at clarifying expectations in advance of the event in enough detail that we go, oh, and when that occurs, maybe a small conflict results at that time rather than during the event. If I knew in the beginning you wanted me there 20 minutes early, I might be a little frustrated with that, feeling like it's going to be a waste of my time. I've never shown up 20 minutes early for anything in my life, I might say to you. So we might have a little bit of a conflict there, a micro-conflict, if you want to call it that. But if we have it there, it'll be much different than, than those conflicts that happen after time passes. They'll be much, much easier to manage, sometimes barely even noticeable. So they clarify expectations by being as specific as possible and by linking the expectation to the value that created it. They probably use something like the so that bridge when they speak. They might say, my expectation is that you arrive 20 minutes before your shift 
according to the clock on your cell phone, so that you can get up to speed, and you can receive a briefing from the outgoing team member, and settle in and be ready to work as soon as your time begins. Arrive early so that your team members do not need to stay longer, so that they don't need to do your work. There, you see how, how that connects the specifics, 20 minutes early, with the value behind it. You know, be, be dependable. Take care of your team, okay? Maybe they'll follow up with, a, I, I've noticed, some, some leaders, especially with expectations that might be um, a, a quite a bit different than what the person is used to doing. Um, they, might, uh, they might follow up with, is that a reasonable kind of a question? And then debate that a little bit. If it's not, they'll address it before disappointment and frustration sets in. This approach uh, helps you and I address conflict when it is small, like I called this a moment ago, micro-conflict. This is a conflict that arises from missed expectations or unproductive behavior, but it's so small that I can change my behavior now, or you can change your expectations in some way, before I've built all these habits, and before you turn into some sort of seething, toxic pool of frustration. (laughs) Okay, so fourth, what do these skilled leaders do when they get the big no assessment of conflict that's coming their way? They communicate directly about impacts. So when addressing uh, behavior, they describe the exact impact that behavior creates. They're careful not to exaggerate or to dramatically embellish. Everyone hates it when you do that is probably not accurate. Um, Two of us are mildly irritated when you do that. It's probably more accurate. Everyone had to do your work for for the first part of the day is dramatic, right? It's embellishing. That's not true. What really had to happen was uh, Janet over there had to take the first call that was coming in that was really yours, or Janet had to deal with the person who came in looking for an email from you. So you see, they're really careful not to exaggerate or to embellish, but they they talk literally about the impact. Maybe the impact is big, maybe it's small, but they're very careful. So if if you and I embellish um, when we talk about the impact of something, it really causes us to lose credibility. It's drama is really what it is. Drama, you know, while entertaining, doesn't really inspire confidence. She is an amazing actor (laughs) is a compliment on Broadway. But it's not a compliment for a leader or a member of the team. And so in resolving conflict, they think about when the conflict did not exist. And they ask, well, what has changed? Then they set about resolving the conflict. Think about that word, resolving. It's actually re-solving, another way of thinking about it. So they look at when it was not a conflict and what happened and now, when, is, when did it become a conflict? What, what was the change right in there? And they go back to that change, and therein they're able to apply a solution and re-solve the problem. Change in behavior is really the only thing that will bring about this resolution. Okay, fifth. Skilled leaders do not drop the ball. They follow up. All resolutions in conflict that last do so because changed behaviors have become changed habits. 
conscious behavior um, becomes unconscious habit through intentional and rewarding repetition. Although habits form much more quickly than most of us would like to admit, such formation is, is more likely to occur if there's a reward in that behavior. Accountability is that reward. That might sound a little odd and surprising, so let's sink in a little bit. Knowing that I succeeded and that you will ask me about it is in and of itself rewarding. If I said I was going to do something and did it, and then you step up to me and say, hey, did you do it? And I say, yep, that in and of itself is an extremely powerful reward. So effective leaders put follow-up conversations specifically about the behavior change that was agreed to on the calendar. This is a, this is a powerful and leveraged uh, catalyst that results in sustaining the resolution. So, hey, let's meet in 10 days for noon. Uh, I mean, uh, in 10 days at noon for so, hey, let's meet in 10 days at noon for five minutes to see if what we agreed to has become a habit. Look at that. That's pretty straightforward. Leaving any behavior-based conflict resolution open-ended in the hope that change will occur merely from the uh, intensity or the force of the conversation. Leaving any behavior-based conflict resolution open-ended in the hope that change will occur merely from the intensity or the force of the conversation, is really the kiss of death. It's also an open invitation to escalation of the conflict. So, you know, we do what we do because it works. When conflict is repeated, even after it's been addressed directly and a behavioral solution has been agreed to, we enter into a fascinating dynamic. If behavior doesn't change and continue in that change and, and, and be, if, if it's not durable, if it doesn't keep going, then we're probably worse off than before the conflict was addressed. This is really one of the most powerful axioms that I've stumbled across in life. We do what we do because it works for us. Regardless of intentions and hopes and promises, if one turns to a set of behaviors and then returns to that set of behaviors, it's because they work. Uh, the corollary, of course, is this. If I change my behavior and sustain that change, it's because the new behavior works better than the old one. But there's, there's really more. No conflict will be resolved if it does not include behavior change by both parties. That is, if there's two parties in a conflict, if there's more than all parties need to change. Therefore, what will you do differently is one of the most powerful and leveraged questions you and I can ask as a result of, of a conflict or at the end of a conflict when we're trying to bring about resolution. And, and both parties, if there's just two of us engaged in this small conflict, must change their behavior. Assigning blame for the conflict really isn't helpful. And then it ends up setting one party free from this dynamic and putting all the pressure on another one. It really is sets the stage for more conflict. So great leaders ask, what will you do differently as a result of this conversation? 
or of this training or of this call or this event, etc. In fact, it's one of the most commonly asked questions that I've heard and began to use several years ago myself. Great leaders that I've been able to follow around ask this question frequently. Then when the team member says something behavioral rather than intentional, for example, um, I'm going to... I'm going to show up 20 minutes early, to use our earlier um, example. That's behavioral. Okay, Intentional or internal is I'm going to try to do a better job. See that? I can't tell if you're trying to do a better job or not. Uh, I, can, I, I can't tell. All I can tell is did you show up 20 minutes early? <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. So when a team member says something behavioral, you know, rather than that internal stuff, those really great leaders write it down somewhere. They put it on their phone. They put it on their calendar. And then they follow up. And they tell the person, I'm going to follow up. And here it is. And it's pretty straightforward. They're, I'm going to keep score, and so are you. And here's when the end of the game is. This is an exceptionally effective discipline. And it works both ways as well. So you might end a conversation with, okay, here's what I will do differently as a result of this conversation. And I'll get back to you in 15 days to let you know how it's going. Remember, it's not your calendar. It's not your heart. So I hope this is helpful as you experience maybe even today one of life's great assessments (laughs) when life says no. And specifically in the form of a minor conflict with someone. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day. Thanks for joining me in today's School of Leadership. This podcast is part of the Archimedes Experiment, leveraged wisdom from the world's most effective leaders. If you're interested in more, go to my website, dhicks.com. Remember, my first name has only one E. Well, you'll find more short and helpful podcast books and blog posts. If this was helpful, maybe even share it with some of your friends. Have a great day.